Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Dr. Timothy J. Collins, the seventh president of Walsh University. Prior to becoming president, Dr. Collins served in executive leadership at the Johns Hopkins University. Before joining Johns Hopkins University in 2005, Dr. Collins served as a senior officer in the United States Air Force with command, staff, and diplomatic experiences during his military career. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchor Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, thrilled to be on campus today, a uh, beautiful Walsh University uh, with president here, uh, Dr. Tim Collins. Uh, president Collins, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Swords up, swords up. We're happy to have you. <laughs> thanks for coming out to see us. Thank you. Um, so I, I have become uh, convinced over the past you know, six years since launching CLT that uh, the job of college president Maybe the most difficult job uh, there is. You've got to be so so knowledgeable uh, about so many different areas, um, and so congrats to you getting to year three. It seems like the university is thriving uh, under your leadership. Uh, but I actually want to start off with with kind of talking through your background before Walsh. You have a very interesting background uh, as a university president. So uh, tell us a bit about your kind of academic formation growing up, and then your journey into uh, I believe the Air Force. Yeah, I think my background is not much different than anyone else's in terms of variety. If if you subscribe to the philosophy, which we do here at Walsh University, which Catholic education has always ascribed to, that each one of us has a unique purpose. We're all destined to do something uniquely different. Think about 7 billion hmm. people in the world, and not a single other person has the same fingerprint hmm. that you have, that I have, that Katie has. Yeah. So we're all different. So... Um, the amazing thing which we try to teach here at the school is your purpose also changes. Mm. It changes over time. And that's actually countercultural, right? So what the culture wants to tell us is by the time you're 17 years old, you're supposed to know what you want to study, where you want to go, what you want to be the rest of your life, and we're all done, sew it up. And that's actually not true. So when our students walk around and they say, you know, I don't really know what I want to do. I don't know where I want to go. I don't know what I should study. We should be shouting, that's normal, hmm. you know. And so we're trying to prepare them. So for me, my life's purpose, it uh, began with uh, graduate from high school at age 16. Mm -hmm. And I was too young to go to a service academy. I'd wanted to go to a service academy. Hmm. And so uh, I had to sort of get a few more years underneath me till I could be eligible. So I was living in Atlanta, Georgia at the time. My father worked for the Bell System, so we moved a lot as a kid. So I was going to go off to the University of Georgia. And my father says, why are you going to the University of Georgia? I said, well, Dad, that's the number one ranked school in the Southeast. Hmm. He goes, well, whose list is that? I said, the most authoritative list I know, Playboy magazine. <laughs> and my dad said, my 16-year-old is not going to the University of Georgia. So I went off to Georgia Military College, which was a two-year military school, junior college at the time is what we called those junior colleges. Mm -hmm. And that really prepared me a lot. I had the opportunity then to go to the Air Force Academy. 
And so that was the launching of my first career, which was, for me, about giving back the here and now. You know, the amazing thing about citizenship is it carries mm-hmm. with it responsibilities and obligations, not just freedoms and privileges. Mm-hmm. And what an amazing country we would have if everyone did something to give back mm-hmm. instead of just to take. You know, Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers, this democracy, this federal constitutional republic that we have, this experiment that we call America will only work until we start giving ourselves things. Hmm. And so that's part of our challenge today. We're busy, full steam ahead on giving ourselves things. But nonetheless, so I spent 23 years in the Air Force. I was a fighter pilot in the Air Force. We moved 22 times. Wow. Uh, my yep. kids only one time, we have three, only one time returned to the same school in the fall. Wow, two okay. In the, in the spring. And that one time they said, what's all this about? I said, well, I'll just check and see if you're burning bridges. Uh-huh. Um, so then from the Air Force Academy, I went to Johns Hopkins University. I was in the applied physics lab there. And I had a full career at Johns Hopkins as well in in the lab. And so in the laboratory, I came in and I was heading up a bunch of the research that we were doing in Hmm. things that sort of support military warfighters, first responders. And that phase of my life was about making sure that for the future, those that are defending us, those that are protecting us, they have the best equipment possible using the best technologies that are available. Um, and then I finished up that role. We created a government relations function. Hopkins has been the largest recipient of federal funding for research for hmm. 41 straight years. Wow. So the laboratory was a big um, piece of that in addition to chairing some two programs in the Whiting School of Engineering. But So that was about the future. Hmm. But this role here, this opportunity to serve in this role at Walsh University is about building leaders. Okay. It's about people. So if you think about any walk of life in terms of organizational structures, profit or not-for-profit, education institutions, wherever, almost all of those leaders have had a university or college experience. Hmm. So we know that the students walking around here today, that they have um, the opportunity to develop themselves in a way that they will be the most effective leaders because they're going to be the leaders. So Air Force to Johns Hopkins, to a Catholic university, not really a straight line. Yeah. And this goes back to our purpose. I can see now how some of the things in my past have prepared Hmm. me for now. And as I think about where we're going, what the university is doing, you know, very exciting to think about, okay, how will my purpose change? Yeah. You know, looking at that. Tell us a bit about the history uh, of Walsh. Uh, I, I was a college, at the end of my second year as a college counselor uh, at, a, at a Catholic school, uh, when I think I, I first heard the name, uh, it's great to be on campus, uh, but for some of our audience, it may be kind of an, an unknown. Uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, the history of the institution? Sure. Walsh is uh, very much unknown. It's a local, it's not even, I would say, regional yet, although that's mm-hmm. changing a lot right now, and I'll talk about that in a second. But the Brothers of Christian Instruction are, an, it's not really an order, it's a congregation of men that were formed after the French Revolution. Hmm. And they were trying to help the youth get an education. Two priests were focusing on this. So they went to the DeSalian brothers, which is the Christian brothers of instruction. You may know that. Yep. Christian brothers university, mm-hmm. well, high schools around here. And they said, Hey, we need some help. Can you do this over mm-hmm. here? And they were like, no, we don't have enough guys right now. And we only go two by two. So these two priests said, well, let's just start our own order. And these were the first orders, the first congregations that the church officially sanctioned mm-hmm. that were not religious. 
These are not, they do not have religious orders. Hmm. They're lay people. So they went to the Italian brothers. They used their rule. They created the first one. And so that began what is now over a 200-year tradition. And their charism is education. And it's primarily been K through 12. So they're in Maine, the American Brothers of Christian Instruction, and they feel like they're being called to do something different. Hmm. They've created their own college right there in Alfred, Maine, but it's for the purpose of educating those that are coming to be brothers and preparing them to okay. go out and be teachers. Just not unlike the way the Dominicans in Nashville do. Yep. You know, right there, they train their own sisters and then they send them out. To, yeah, I'm, know, I'm, I'm a big fan. My daughter's at a school run by the Nashville Dominicans. There you go. So it's a, the same, yep. the exact same thing. So they were on their way to Michigan to check out a site in Detroit for where they would put this college. And they stopped here and the bishop, Bishop Walsh, and the Diocese of Youngstown convinced them that this is where they need to be. So the ground we're standing on here in Stark County hmm. is, the, is the ground that the bishop provided them to start their college. So they named the school after Bishop Walsh, which, you know, is very, you know, sentimental. It means great things. But when you say Walsh University, nobody knows that's Catholic. Mm. You know, couldn't we call it like St. Walsh or, <laughs> you know, something like that. So um, yeah. and the bishop, he's buried in Charleston. So early on in my time here, I went to Charleston on a visit and I went to the gravesite to, you know, visit with mm. the bishop and say, you know, you got to help me here. You know, what is it that we're trying to do? And so the brothers came here and their whole philosophy was to offer this educational experience to those who are on the fringe of society. Mm. Go where no one else will go and bring them in and give them this opportunity. We know in America that what a college education will do in terms of social mobility hmm. is amazing, as well as in terms of what it will do just for family stability. So that's what it's been here for. So we're, we're celebrating our 62nd year right here. So we're still pretty young. Okay. But we are, we are on the national scene now. The, we've got an effort going in the sciences. You know, you hear a lot about STEM, yep. science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And, you know, STEM schools, Stanford and Hopkins and great yeah. places like that. And so we're focused on a part of that, too, because, oh, by the way, science and math, um, those are liberal arts. Mm, mm-hmm. So STEM is actually liberal <laughs> arts. You know, Newsflash yeah. uh, for everyone else out there. So we've started an effort here to retrain and retool the American workforce yeah. in terms of offering to companies and employers, how do they develop their workforce to meet the changing technological needs that are happening? So picture manufacturing plant here in Northeast Ohio. We're big mm. into manufacturing. What the workforce knows is how to operate that piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. So you recapitalize a factory and you come drop in a whole bunch of equipment and they don't know, well, how do I use machine learning? How do I use artificial intelligence? Mm. How does this thing work? Because all they really know is how to go A to B to C to press those buttons and out comes whatever Mm. they're trying to manufacture. But there's so much more capability there. So we've developed a three-day program to sort of teach them some of these technologies and how to think about it, which is really the role of education. We're supposed to be teaching people how to think, not telling them what to think. So this program that we have, the National Science Mm. Foundation has declared Wash University the first in the nation to activate this concept. Oh, wow. And so we're, we're, um, you know, it's a great, it's great for the workforce. And it's part of what I think our responsibility is as a university in terms Mm. of giving back to the community, to the state, to the region, not just taking care of the students that are here. So one of my critiques of, of STEM is that it, there, there's often a disconnect uh, from the humanities. There's often a disconnect from moral formation in general. 
Uh, I can't think of anything more terrifying than amazing technology in the hands of people right. with no moral – <laughs> With, with, with the, in the hands of people with no moral formation at all. I mean, that's terrifying. How do you integrate Catholic identity, moral formation with STEM at Walsh? Well, I think we have to sort of start at 30,000 feet. It won't surprise you on pilots, so I like to start high and then, yeah. you know, <laughs> around, take the God's eye view. I often ask myself, I wonder what God sees when he looks down on a Catholic university. Hmm. You know, prima facie, he sees activity, people moving around, you know, all that kind of stuff. But what's what's really um, going on. And I think right now in our society, we're very confused. And you, you highlight STEM, which is an excellent example. It's when people can kind of get their, their head around. But, you know, think about this in terms of life, which is the premier issue for the Catholic Church. Hmm. We are okay with destroying life in the womb. At the same time, we're okay with using technology to create life in a laboratory. Hmm. Can we be more confused than hmm. that? Well. And so what we have the obligation to do is to make sure our students are not built just for their career, which is a utilitarian view hmm. of what higher education is about and where is all this knowledge going. But it, it highlights the divergence of what's happening inside of a university. Hmm. And I think when God looks down on many universities, what he sees is a bunch of stovepipes, and yet knowledge has unity. It all comes together. You know, reason and faith work hand in hand. Hmm. They never contradict each other. They emanate from the same source. They feed each other. And you have to use both. And if you're not using both, then you'll find yourself in ethical situations where you can come up with this great technology, but you don't really understand how you're supposed to use it. Hmm. And so the foundations of... Uh, moral philosophy, the theological view. I mean, you, you look at the public schools, the secular schools, they'll take entire branch of knowledge called the science of God, hmm. and they'll throw it off the table. Yeah. They'll take philosophy off and with it and say, okay, now here's the table of knowledge. Yep. Okay, but if you're trying to solve something, you're trying to understand something, you're trying to help people that can't help themselves, if you're trying to help people that don't even have a voice, we try to teach our students, you have to use everything. You can't hmm. throw stuff off the table. You've got to use everything. So you say, well, why can't I use theology and philosophy hmm. when we're trying to solve problems? And the first thing they'll say is, well, Tim, you know, there's no way we're going to teach our students to believe things they can't see. How stupid is that? Hmm. Believe things you can't see. Okay, so hey, Jeremy, can you see the wind? Can you see electricity? Hmm. Can we look outside across our campus? Oh, there's love over there. Nope, that's not love over there. No. Hmm. So we say that's just a bunch of poppycock. Yeah. There are absolutely things that you can't see that you can believe and know are true. So why is it that I can't use faith and reason? Hmm. Why is it I won't teach my students that when these they're in these final years of formation? Then they'll come right back and say, well, it's because when you say faith, what you're really talking about is religion. And, you know, in the public sector, we don't go there. Religion is very focused. And, you know, it's on hmm. things that aren't really real. We're going to be objective. And we're just going to sort of lay it out. So we're not going to go there. Okay, so faith is religion. So, hey, Jeremy, when you put gas in your car now, 6 $7 a gallon, did you know that was <laughs> gas going in your tank? It's faith. When I got my drink this morning at McDonald's, I'm, you know, McDonald's royalty. My family was all McDonald's except <laughs> for my father. Did I know they didn't poison my drink before they gave it to me? When I did my mobile deposit on my phone, did I know that money went into my bank? No, no, no. See, there's we use faith all yeah. day long. So we want to teach our students, use everything you got. Use faith. Use reason. Use everything 
because you're trying to understand what objective reality is. Mm. And what we're here to do at Walsh University, what those that I think are trying to maintain, you know, good continuity and faithfulness to what the church has done for 934 years, will insist that you find objective reality. Now, what do I mean by objective reality? So the first thing I mean is that you're going to take all forms of relativism, all forms, Hmm. and we will throw those off the table. So I think there's two kinds of reality. There's subjective reality and there's objective reality. So Hmm. let's do subjective reality first. So subjective reality is that which I think nor believe is just internal to myself. So I retired at Johns Hopkins University as a Baltimore. So therefore, I know the Baltimore Ravens are the best football team. Hey, hey, here, here. So there's nobody else. And as an Annapolis guy, you know, you and I are going to talk about that. I don't know what went on out there at L.A. County a couple months ago. It didn't matter. They were the wrong teams. I think there's a team in Cleveland. There might be a historical connection. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter strength of schedule. It doesn't matter who the players are. The Baltimore Ravens are the best football team in the NFL. Okay, that's subjective reality. Mm -hmm. But what we want to tell our students is, yeah, sure, you start there. But then you have to come out of yourself, and you have to look around, Hmm. and you have to see what else is there and bring that home to find objective reality. Mm -hmm. So, Tim, give me an example. I'd love to give you an example, Jeremy. So let's step outside on the academic quad right out here Hmm. and take a blind person and say, ma'am, do trees exist? Okay, if she says no, does that mean they don't exist? Hmm. Of course not. And the only way she can say yes is to come out of herself and find some other way with some other tools to come back home and say, okay, I can't really see it, but I know through all these other ways that trees do exist. Hmm. So that's what we need our students to do because as they grow up and become leaders, leaders in their families, leaders in their community, leaders in their workplace, they're going to have to find objective reality if they're really going to help others. And so we're in a very confused state right now. So we end up in STEM fields where we'll discover Hmm. like artificial intelligence and we don't, we won't really understand what it means if that robot is going to be used in a weapons employment situation like in Ukraine Hmm. and takes out a hospital or, you know, some other civilian target that it shouldn't do. You know, I I appreciate your boldness in speaking about the confused times that we live in. Uh, Perhaps there's never been more people appealing to the authority of science, uh, you know, than ever before science says, science says, you know, of course, we've heard this a lot, especially over the past couple of years. And at the same time, uh, a complete disregard for science uh, when it conflicts with an ideological commitment. It could be right right to life. It could be uh, ideas about gender fluidity. Um, how do you, as a university president, especially right now when these are considered, you know, hot button sensitive issues that you're culturally insensitive, uh, if you say thing that's uh, against kind of the new progressive orthodoxy, how do you navigate this as a university president? Well, it's certainly not easy. And it's not easy if you're a father or if you're a mother and you're trying to raise your family. So, um, Mm. you know, from an institutional perspective, again, this speaks to the confusion of the times. Because we have politicians, our political leadership, that are creating the problem. Hmm. And they create it by saying things that are just about as, you know, dumber than a doorbell (laughs) that says, follow the science. You don't follow science. Science is an input to using your gift of free will and your gift of reason and your gift Hmm. of intellect so that you can decide how that influences what you know. Hmm. So the function of the university is to basically at a very basic level, is to know and to teach. Obviously, 
those that are knowable and teachable. Mm-hmm. And, and we're trying to ever, ever expand that. And so we have to teach our students that the only way you can actually navigate that space is by staying closely coupled to the search for truth. Hmm. And now we're taught in our faith tradition and many faith traditions, you know, treat others as you wish to be treated. So Mm -hmm. we have to get away from just the rhetoric and the meanness and the spirit of the times, which are such that if you don't agree with me, I will destroy you and your reputation. Mm. Yeah. So I tell our students at orientation, freshman orientation, when they're here in that, when they just arrived at the university, I offer them two thoughts. The first one is I teach them, I try to teach them this idea that, you know, get back up. Life mm. is just going to knock you down over and over and over again, especially if you are going to try to follow you know, and believe where your heart is taking you and God mm-hmm. has written in your heart. And so if you're going to try to be faithful to the teachings of Jesus Christ, you know, you can guarantee you're going to be knocked down. So you got to get back up because if you don't get back up, you know, then you're, you're done anyway. It's like for our sports teams, you know, you don't actually uh, quit because you lose. You quit, you know, when you're defeated. Mm. And so the other thing I tell them is that words mean things. You know, we're taught as kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we know that's not true. Uh-huh. That's absolutely not true. Words are super powerful. And so right from the beginning, we've got, uh, for our first-year students, they come from a culture where words are just thrown around randomly. Most of the time, mm. they don't even know what they mean. They don't have any understanding or appreciation of when it hurts someone else. They know when it hurts them. Mm-hmm. But they don't really sometimes think about, well, I'm probably doing the same thing. But here's how powerful words are. So around the turn of the 20th century, so it's you know the early part of the 20th century, the 1900s, there is a seven-year-old altar boy, mm. and he's serving at mass with a bishop. Mm-hmm. And he comes to bring the cruet of wine and water to the altar. Mm. And as he comes, he trips and he falls and he drops the water mm-hmm. and it shatters. And the bishop spins around and slaps him and says, get off this altar and never come back. Mm. Okay, he grew up to be Tito, which is one of the most you know, vicious dictators mm. of the 20th century. At nearly that same moment in time, a half a world away, there's another seven-year-old who's serving at mass in Peoria, Illinois. Mm. And he comes across the altar and he too drops the water. And the priest turns around and says, it's okay. Things happen. We can get some more water. Hmm. I think you will be a priest. And he grew up to be Fulton Sheen. Wow. Wow. Words do matter. Wow. And they stick a long time. So what we have to do is we have to teach our students how to use the gift of the tongue. Mm -hmm. But more to the point, how to listen. So the problem we have in the country right now, we have two crises going on. We have a crisis of leadership. We have a crisis of conviction. So the crisis of conviction is we're only listening to the loudest voice in Mm. the room. Mm -hmm. The crisis of leadership is that those who know better are part of the problem, and they're not helping us listen to each other. Mm. And one feeds the other. And on this side of listening for the crisis of leadership— and the crisis of conviction, 
we are being, we have too many people that are being silent hmm. and not standing up. Because, you know, Americans, we just want to kind of get along. But, you know, the good Lord told us something. He gave us twice as many listening devices than he did speaking devices. <laughs> I think true. he's telling us we're supposed to listen about twice as much as we talk. Hmm. Unlike this podcast where I'm doing talking <laughs> and I'm not listening. But I think that that's really important. Our students need to learn that. And there's no way you're going to find objective reality. You cannot come out of yourself if you don't listen yeah. to others. So the way I navigate that space is I you know, work hard at trying to make sure we have opportunities to listen to each mm. other and to have reasoned yeah. and reasonable debate. We're going to differ on the way we think about nearly everything. So f- for everyone that comes here at the university to work, Mm-hmm. On the employment side, you know, I have an effort. I nobody comes to Walsh University. Nobody signs a contract without thirty, forty-five minutes with me. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about our mission. I want to talk about what we're doing. I want to talk about the contribution that we're going to make to society. I want to talk about the common good. I want to talk about, you know, what it is we need to get done. Mm-hmm. And so here at Walsh University, we only have two requirements for people to work here. We don't expect everyone to be Catholic. We're not. Um, going to insist that people, you know, necessarily convert to Catholicism. I think the reality is everyone is Catholic. They just don't know it yet. Uh, so they'll, they'll figure it out. But we're going to create an environment where they can see another side. But the two requirements are the first thing is we need everyone to respect the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. So in all of our classrooms and all of our rooms, you know, we have a crucifix, and right by the crucifix mm-hmm. is the mission statement. So if that bothers people when they come to work here, let's work that out right now because they're not coming down just because Tim Collins came to work here. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. I'm offended. Okay, I'm sorry. You know, you have to respect the faith tradition. I don't like Catholic art. It's offensive. Well, you're going to find a lot of Catholic art around here. Basically, all things are in the Catholic intellectual tradition. So if you're offended by that from expectation management, then just understand that. So the first thing is respect the faith. And the second thing is, and there's only two things, so there's not many to remember, be charitable. People just have to be charitable. If the whole country would suddenly turn the volume down and just be charitable, everything would change. So this next question may not be super charitable, but I'm going to take a shot at your former institution, uh, Hopkins. So 2014, I was a college counselor. These admission reps would come and visit and, and present to our students. And Hopkins was the first visit from admissions, uh, recruiting students from Mount DeSales Academy, where a main selling point uh, to come there was that you didn't have to take any course you didn't want to take. Uh, they were selling an a la carte model. I remember the admissions rep saying, you know, if you don't want to take uh, English, you don't have to. If you don't want to take a foreign language, you don't have to. If you don't want to take government, you don't have to. And the kids were like, that sounds really cool. I like that idea. And I was thinking, this this is disastrous. Like, these institutions have a responsibility uh, for young people to basically eat their chicken and broccoli, to have the courses that might not sound fun, uh, but that are going to form them in the right ways. Uh, we've seen university after university since the 1950s trash their core curriculum. Um, I'm wondering, what what are the national implications of that, moving away from a solid core, and what are you doing at Walsh uh, to maintain one? So I'll, I'll first answer the second one. We've just redone our core. We've added theology, more theology Love it. to our core. Good. So okay. We're going the other direction. You know, at universities, what we look at when we look at universities is essentially a divergence in intellectual traditions. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to understand what the traditions are that are being taught 
at a university, you sort of have to go to the next level and say, well, what are the courses? Hmm. What what does actually the syllabus say? If you want to understand which particular intellectual philosophy or tradition that they're following. And so the Hopkins model, which is not, um, there's others that have done it. We've done it in the Catholic space too. This mm-hmm. you know, create your own major. Again, this is a function of confusion. Hmm. We forget what the role of education. Education is the passing <laughs> on from one generation to the next. Amen. Yep. You know, the way you think and the way you act and the way you behave and how you think about others. And it's about hmm. the common good. This is, we're confused at the political level. Right. In America, we think the common good is about the state providing us with the opportunity for all of us to individually do what we want. Hmm. Okay, they're not flowing back into Ukraine as Ukrainians to fight for their country because they think this is about a privatized individual good. Hmm. They understand that the competing view is actually what the country, what the state does, is it provides the environment so that we are concerned for the welfare of all, hmm. which implies necessarily sometimes you have to give it the office and sometimes you get to take it the office. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's not just about you. Hmm. And so that idea of individualism sort of on steroids is where you land if you're selling education instead of trying to teach it. Hmm. These students, particularly our 18 to 24-year-olds, they are in the final years of their formation. They have no idea what they know, Hmm. what they need to know. That's our job, (laughs) is to tell them what they need to know. I don't really think I need to understand this philosophy. You know what? You might not understand this for 20 years, Hmm. but you're going to wake up one day and go, ah, that's why I needed to know that. Mm -hmm. When you understand, it teaches you logic. Hmm. It teaches, again, this all gets back into how to think instead of what to think. Mm -hmm. If you're into what to think, let them take whatever they want. This is one of, you know, Ron Daniels, president of Walsh University, he's just released a book. uh, You know, what do universities owe democracies? Mm. It's a a very interesting book to read. When you think about what are the contributions universities need to make to the good of the country Hmm. to the good of democracy. Now, you don't have to agree with all the ideas. And so if you're only going to read books that you agree with, you know, I would encourage you to stretch yourself because you Mm -hmm. can, you know, for me, I think I learned the most from the teachers that aggravated me the most, Hmm. not the ones that I was in love with because I, you know, their teaching style. But, you know, he advocates for this idea that right now students today are living in a bubble. And they only want to be with who they want to be with. They don't want to talk with people that they want to talk with. They don't want to hear ideas they want to hear with. So, hmm. and this whole side of sexual identity and gender, you know, gender identity and sexual orientation, we hear this in the term safe space. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be exposed to there's another idea. Hmm. Well, universities are supposed to be about ideas. So safe space are non-starters hmm. at, a, at a Catholic university. There's two trends that have been running consistently for 934 years, which since the Catholic Church invented higher education, Mm. meeting the contemporary needs of the students and continuity in our traditions, ever changing, ever the same. Mm -hmm. And so in meeting the needs of the students, I'm not saying that students are challenged in you know, wondering about whatever they want to wonder about. I think they should come here Mm. and let's wonder about it. If you want to wonder about your sexual identity, if you want to wonder about your sexual orientation, if you want to wonder about whatever, come here and let's talk about how to think about how Hmm. you should be reflecting on that. 
Because, of course, here we believe, we know, that our identity is only found in Christ. Mm-hmm. If you attach your identity to anything else, this is why the Catholic mm-hmm. Church is so strong in its historical position that we don't want to attach labels. Mm-hmm. Because if you get wrapped up in the label and then you change your mind, it's very hard to undo that. Mm-hmm. So Cardinal George, and he wrote the book, you may have read it, you know, Does God Make a Difference?, Um, a number of years ago, former Archbishop of Chicago. And he said, you know what? Instead of using labels like true, false, uh, conservative, liberal, let's use, I mean, let's use true, false instead of all these other Hmm. labels, you know, left, right, conservative. I mean, let's go back to true, false. Hmm. So this comes back to the core curriculum. The core is the core. The, the main part, the heartbeat of the academic mission of what we should be doing here. If mm. you just want to have a smorgasbord of classes, well, what do you need to go to a university for? Mm. Why don't I take this course at that school and this course at that school? Because we're trying to bring this together. This is that view God has looking down. Are mm. you really trying to bring unity and knowledge or are you so specialized that you just continually break it apart, break it apart, break it apart? So... I had a cancer fight, you know, 10 or 11 years ago, Hopkins. And if you're ever going to be sick, you want to work for a place like Hopkins or Mayo or Cleveland Clinic. Yeah. You you want to be an executive with them. It's even better. (laughs) But I can remember while they're trying to figure out what had happened after my second surgery, you know, I've got this team of people standing around me. Hmm. And they're specialists. You know, I've got, you know, all kinds of specialists and nurses and doctors and all this kind of stuff. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know what? They're staring at reality and they don't even know what it is. I actually don't need any of this. Where is this idea of prayer? Hmm. Where is this idea of um, faith and how it plays into how I think about getting my physical stuff back Hmm. together into my mental stuff? So, you know, another book, The Power of Silence by Cardinal um, Sarah. If you haven't read that book, it is is probably the singularly most powerful book I've ever read in my life. Okay. And one of the one of the points he makes in there is, you know, you can't really know the depths of life until you discover mm. silence. Think about Our Lady, Mary. Mm. She spends her whole life bathed in silence. So, so true. Silence and backing away. And yeah, you can't have all these specializations, but they all got to come back together. Mm. Okay, Lord, this is my situation. This is my challenge. You know, how is it that I get through this? So that I can align my will with your will. Mm. And do I have the courage to really trust in you? Yes, we can contribute to each other. But at the end of the day, do I have the trust that if my time is up, my time is up. If my time is still to do something else, my time is to do something mm. else. How do, how do we deal with that? So the universities in this ever-increasing, accelerating with philosophy effort to individualize everything, yeah. they abandon that which we know to be true. I, I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. Uh, so Dr. Jen Frey, who is a prof- philosophy professor at the University of South Carolina and who also does some work for uh, Bishop Barron's Word on Fire, um, uniquely positioned at a major state university uh, as a passionate Catholic. And she tweeted something that blew up the Twitter world uh, about kind of pushing back on the idea of safe spaces. And she was essentially kind of making the case that as a philosophy professor – you know, her job is to is to unsettle kind of settled beliefs that people that young people have, right? Um, philosophy is inherently not safe, right? 
Would you say that's the that's the case for an authentically Catholic education? I, I appreciate your boldness and and pushing back against the concept of safe spaces. I wish there were more university presidents doing that. How do you react at Walsh if a student is upset that they have heard an idea that was upsetting to them because it may be a bad former experience or something like that? Well, you know, first my my. Uh, editorial comment on safe space, and we'll we'll leave that for a second. Is for anyone that's in charge of an organization, you know, be careful. You have a legal, not just a moral, obligation to provide a safe environment. If you're going to declare your environment is not safe, you're going to be sued and hmm. you're likely to lose. Hmm. And in some sense, I think that might be the game plan. Mm-hmm. So um, to destroy to destroy organizations that don't agree with the way people are by Hmm. having them admit they're not doing what they should be legally obligated to do. Mm-hmm. So safe spaces are really dangerous. Universities have a, have a responsibility, I think, to teach our students to be skeptical, to ask questions. So, hmm. yes, I completely agree with her philosophical point that, you know, the philosophy is a tool in our toolkit to help us step back and to ask questions. There is no safe space in Hmm. the world. That's why we're the militant (laughs) church. Yeah. There is no safe space. And so um, our safe space is going to be inside, and it's Hmm. going to be, you know, being aware of the Holy Spirit working within us and having the courage to respond. Mm Mm-hmm. Millions of examples in all the lives of the saints. In fact, all of the mystics tell us that the road to holiness starts with humility. Hmm. And so the safe space you'll find is inside being humble enough Hmm. to recognize there is a reality that you can see and know, and you ought not to separate the two. It's well said. Uh, students, parents uh, listening, if, if maybe Walsh wasn't on on the list, but they're 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 hearing you speak, they're liking what they're hearing. Uh, what is kind of a, a good next step for them to explore Walsh? Do you do you have a summer program? Do you invite students to campus? Yeah, we have we have all kinds of programs. We you know of course we'll take a visit anytime. You know we were we during all of COVID we never stopped campus visits. Mm. We never mandated. Um, anything. We set the conditions and then expected people to use judgment. And if their judgment was you know, questionable, then it gave us a chance to talk about it. So for instance, you know, some universities, masks are mandated. Okay. But if you're walking from the library to the resident halls at 10 o'clock at night by yourself, why do you need to wear a mask? <laughs> if you come out of campus yeah. at 730 in the morning to open up the building, you're the first employee here. Why do you have to have a mask? If you're standing out in the academic quad and you're talking to a 70 year old, why don't you have on a Mm. Why are you do, or separating? I mean, we sort of set set up those conditions. So, so we uh, and of course our visit soared mm. during COVID yeah. because we would take the visit. So I would say if you can visit the school, for sure you want to do that. The research shows that our students, when they go on a website, if they can't find what they need in three clicks, mm. they scratch them off the list. <laughs> scratch them off the list. Yeah. So. If I could just put in a shameless plug, catholichighered.com, catholichighered.com. That is my personal website. Okay. Now, I'm not, I don't track anybody that comes to the site. I don't scrape emails. I don't do any of that. But if you go to that website, in my blog section, I have all kinds of little articles that help explain what is the liberal arts. Hmm. If you make a campus visit, what are the three questions you ought to ask that person walking you around? If you're trying to find 
an institution that is aligned with the church. Mm-hmm. Because there's 223 Catholic universities and colleges in the country, and they're full spectrum. You have from one end that's, you know, just maybe like seminary-ish, and the other end that I'm not even sure they know they're Catholic. It's the heritage of the institution or something like that. But if you go there and click on the thing called the Collins Report Card, hmm. it'll it'll drop down. It's a two-page um, download, and I've identified 15 features, markers, that you should help hmm. should help you find what you're looking for without being judgmental. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some five of them are on culture and five of them are on alignment and five of them are on, you know, just engagement. And so as you go to different colleges and universities, you can look at these 15 and do a little scoring. So when you get to the end and you have 15 schools, you have a framework mm-hmm. on how to have this conversation with yourself, with your family, with your guidance counselor, with your grandparents, with whomever. If, if you're trying to, inside of the domain of Catholic education, you want yeah. an institution that the view from the outside looking in is hmm. the same as the inside looking out. Sadly, that's not true at all institutions in Catholic higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and repeat the name of that website. CatholicHigherEd.com. CatholicHigherEd.com. Okay, thank Isn't you. It's amazing that I got that website. That's a, that's just <laughs> it really is. That's a great, great domain there. Um, thinking about a lot of our listeners, they're, they're coming from great uh, organizations like Mother Divine Grace, yeah. Colby, Seton, uh, a lot of great uh, Catholic schools that have kind of re-embraced uh, the tr- tradition, places like Sacred Heart Academy, St. Jerome's. Um, I'm wondering, you know, a lot of these students, they, they love going to daily mass. They go to confession every week. Uh, what is the, the Catholic life like at Walsh yeah. in terms of the sacraments? I think that's an excellent question. And so as you're in the search for a university, you're trying to figure out where that university stands. You have to look at two things. You do have to look at what is happening on the knowledge side. And then you have mm-hmm. to look at what are the practices of the Catholic Church that are manifested in the rhythm, the cadence of the university. So here at Walsh University, you know, we have Holy Mass on campus six days a week, twice on Sundays at 11 o'clock and then also 8 o'clock. That's a very popular student Mass. Mm -hmm. 30 minutes prior to every celebration of the Mass, we have Eucharistic Adoration. We also have Eucharistic Adoration every single day in one of our oratories, the Mother uh, Teresa Oratory. And we also have... For uh, from Wednesday morning all the way through Thursday afternoon, we have overnight adoration, sort of like the forty hours yeah. sort of thing. So um, we we have that. We have we bring the Latin rite to mass. We have Romanians down the down the street. You know, there's like twenty three or twenty four different flavors of the Catholic Church, not just the Roman flavor. So the Byzantine rite. We want to expose our students yeah. to the beauty of the traditions that are there. Hmm. Um, so for the sacraments, confession, 30 minutes prior to every Holy Mass, so they're readily available as well. And the sacramental life is important to us, and we hmm. do take this view of a sacramental view that God is present, He's here all the time, He's hmm. with us, and we should be able to see God in everything that we do. So the cadence we take off, um, you know, for the tritium from... Yep. Thursday, Holy Thursday, all the way through the Monday after with no classes okay, and allow people to have the time to really devote to what's most important. Mm-hmm. Love that. Very, very encouraging. Uh, final final question here. We always end the Anchored Podcast uh, talking about books, uh, the books that have been 
most formative to you? Maybe it's a book that you come back to every year. Uh, I know that you read a lot of books. Uh, I think you said in our, our, one of our previous conversations about 55 per year. So it may be uh, hard to choose just one. Uh, but what, when you think about what has impacted you the most, what, what comes to mind? Well, I think Cardinal Sarah's book, The Power of Silence, mm-hmm. Sacred Silence, has really um, had a huge impact on me because I've you know, come to realize Chesterton calls it the monkeys in the cage. When you're quiet, you try to be quiet. For instance, before Holy Mass and, you know, oh, I got to do this. And, oh, I can't forget I'm going to be late to that. I mean, mm-hmm. it just goes crazy. If I can set all that aside and really quiet myself down and go deep, deep, deep down in silence, I can hear... You know, I have a better chance of you know hearing God's voice. So that's a that's a powerful book. I think for any high school senior or college freshman, I think Theology and Sanity by Frank Sheen mm-hmm. is a must read book. And uh, the parents, you would probably enjoy that too. The reality is, sadly, that we have been uh, very poorly formed here in the modern day. I mean, think about this just for a second, Jeremy, if I may. We come out of Vatican Council. Mm-hmm. Back in Council Two, and the Church Fathers tell us, you know, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. Mm-hmm. And here we find ourselves fifty or sixty years later, and only twenty percent of Catholics believe in the real presence. Mm. I think it's fair to say it's been an abject failure mm. to teach us that that's the source and summit of our faith. Mm. So. Um, there's just a lot of things we have been told over time that if you go to the source documents, you will discover that is not what it said. Mm. So reading the church documents is one way to do it, source documents. Um, we got into this whole crazy world of interpretations of the interpretations of the interpretation. You know, take the tabernacle and put it behind the screen and move it up the altar. The fathers never said that. Mm. They never said that. All these liturgical issues, it was never said. The, the whole mass in the vernacular in English, that's not what they said. Hmm. Sure, parts of it, but they never threw out the tradition of Latin. So theology and sanity helps grapple with a lot of issues that we're all struggling with mm-hmm. and helps put it in a very practical way. Any of Peter Kreft's book, yes. just grab one, any yeah. one you want. You can read those. No, it was uh, The God Who Loves You, which was uh, the yeah. book that—, that I was a seminary student at a Protestant Reformed seminary, and I got a hold of that. And it was it was the beginning of kind of reading my way into Catholicism. Uh, I, I still still That's remember even the page, you know. Yeah. yeah. And then I would just finally say, you know, for the students, if, if your parents want to sort of understand where the kids are coming from, Tommy Teague's got a series, The Catholic Hipster. Okay. Grab, grab that one. There's a hipster handbook. Uh-huh. And it's also for the students to find themselves where – they're drawn, for instance, to the Latin Mass. They're drawn in this deeper way, but they're finding all this uh, dissonance in the culture, fighting them on doing that. Hmm. Uh, Teague has a way of sort of helping them think their way through that. So those are just a couple books. I, I do encourage everyone to read. Reading is uh, an opportunity just to expand your range in education, which is mm-hmm. what the liberal arts does. And it fires off those synapses in ways that you think about things you never would have thought about. And so I would encourage everyone. I, I mean, I try to read more than one a week. 
it was just what the 55 number is that keeps me better than one book a week. So, yep. but if you're not on a reading plan right now, start with one a month. Yep. And in 10 years, you're 120 books smarter than you are today. Love that. Again, we are here on campus uh, at Walsh University with President uh, Dr. Tim Collins. President Collins, I've been so impressed uh, with just the enthusiasm for Catholicism, for the richness uh, of the church, the, the tradition here on campus. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. Sorts up. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.